book of Leviticus. We know you've been avoiding it because it's weird. So let's fix that. Now remember, the story of the Bible began with humans in God's presence, but they were banished because of their rebellion. However, God wants to be in relationship with us, so he chooses one family that he will use to restore the world back into his presence. And so God's presence comes to dwell in a tent right in the middle of Israel. And that's great. But it creates a problem because it's so intense that Moses can't go in and other priests who enter inappropriately, they die. Well, wait, if God's presence is good, how is it all of a sudden dangerous for people? So think of it this way. God's presence is like the sun. It's pure power and goodness. And when something mortal and corruptible gets close to such pure power, it's destroyed. And so the word holiness is used in Leviticus to describe God's pure and powerful presence, which, like the sun, is both good and dangerous. So the point of Leviticus is to show how corrupt Israelites can live near God's goodness without being destroyed. Now, in the book, there are three ways for how this is all going to work out, and these are going to seem strange to you, but just hang in there with us. The first one is rituals. The second is this idea of the priesthood, and the third is a bunch of purity laws. Now, the book is broken up into seven sections, and each solution is explored in two sections of the book. The rituals are here, the priests are here, and the purity laws go here. Now, the first solution, rituals, involves a lot of animal sacrifices. And so Leviticus begins with detailed instructions for how to make these sacrifices. Some are ways of saying thank you to God, and others are simply ways of saying I'm sorry. And here, at the end of the book, there are some more rituals. These are about observing sacred days and festivals. They're all celebrations that retell some part of the story of how God rescued Israel and set them apart from the nations. So today we begin a brand new series called Holy Smokes. We're studying Leviticus. We're going to look at a major theme of this book is the idea of holiness. And a reoccurring theme is the idea of smoke offerings, a different type of smoke offerings, what they mean in our relationship with God and what they mean in our connection with Him. We're also calling it Holy Smokes. We're studying Leviticus because many people think of this book as the most boring, irrelevant speed bump when I was trying to read through the Bible and I stopped when I got to Leviticus kind of book. So we're also going to teach you in this series how to study the Bible through principles of Bible study, what's called hermeneutics. How do you know you're reading what the Bible meant to say, not what you wanted the Bible to say? So you got a bookmark when you came in. We're going to be using this throughout the series and each week teaching you how to use a particular principle, easy ones, medium ones, and hard ones for difficult passages. And we're going to untangle some difficult ones as we go through this series together. Today I want to show you the first one on the list right above the easy. It's one of the most important principles for understanding the Bible is this. Use the Bible to interpret the Bible. The Bible is the best commentary on itself. So if you come across a phrase or an idea and you're like, I do not know what that means, you can go to BibleGateway.com or something like that, type in the phrase that you're seeing in a book like Leviticus and see if a book like Hebrews or uh, Ephesians references that principle and tells you more about it. We're going to see that three times today. By studying Leviticus chapter 1, you're going to suddenly understand lots of things in the New Testament that give commentary on that. The main idea here in the book of Leviticus, though, is this, is that God wanted to make a way that the commonplace could come into sacred space. 
God basically wants to set up a home on earth. Heaven has come to earth and created a home called the tabernacle, a place where heaven and earth intersect and overlap, and God would invite you into his home. The problem is that became sacred space. And so God had to make a way that the commonplace, you and I who are common, not sacred, could come into the presence of God. And that's going to happen through a whole process of holy smoke going up before God in different specific ways. Now, we're going to look at three aspects of holy smoke, but as we do that, I want you to know what's amazing here about the book of Leviticus is it is a way in which people could know confidently they are acceptable to God. And they could know how to be acceptable to God. Now, immediately there's a disconnect because up until the last 50 years of philosophy and religion, all the ancient religions of any different denomination, any different background, knew that they were not acceptable to God because of their behavior, because of their heart, because of their thoughts. So every religion knew you had to do certain things to get the commonplace into sacred space. However, even in that, you never knew if you did enough. You never knew if, whether you're Egyptian or Canaanite. You never knew. You just sort of hoped the gods weren't as angry as they used to be. You sort of hoped they accepted you. But God is going to provide a way that the Hebrews can know how to be acceptable before God. How to know you're in right standing with God. This was unheard of in its day. The problem today is we live in a postmodern culture who goes, well, God loves everybody. I'm acceptable. And instead of realizing the gap between us and God and that God made a way to fill that gap, we've lowered God's standard and said, well, wink, wink, elbow, elbow, he'll let that slide. So one of the challenges we're going to have in this book is that we have to first identify the problem. We don't live up to God's standard to appreciate how much he paid for it. But we can know, not wish, hopefully, know we're acceptable for God. The first aspect of Holy Smokes is this. Holy Smokes is a housewarming gift. That's the first offering we're introduced to. See, in those days, when you picked up a scroll, you wouldn't even have called it Leviticus. You would call the book by the first line of the scroll. So you'd say, hey, let's go read from the scroll, and the Lord called to Moses. And so people thought of this book and this scroll as God calling you into his house calling you to come over and spend some time together. Hey, come over to my house and let's enjoy each other's presence together. This book was primarily about dwelling together in God's presence and in God's house. And it wasn't just for the priests. All other religions, the priests could go into sacred space, but not everybody else. What's shocking here is that God calls not just Moses, not just the priests, but he's asking everyone to come over to his house. He says to Moses... From the tabernacle meeting, come on in and say to the children of Israel, say to them, when any one of you, again, shocking, anyone wants to come into my presence, they can. Whether you grew up religious or irreligious. Are you Hebrew or are you one of the Egyptians that came with us out of bondage? Regardless of how much money you have, he'll make different ways for people, different economic levels to come into his presence. Anyone. No matter what you've done or where you've been, anyone is invited into the house of God. And when any one of you brings an offering, and this word offering is a really interesting word because there's different types of offering. This one comes from a Hebrew word called korban. And it's a noun version of a verb version, karav, which means to give. So literally it's saying, when you want to come into my house, the one thing you need to do to bring the commonplace into sacred space is you need to bring a korban, which literally is a gift. 
Now, this is not a, a guilt offering. Those are coming later that covers your sin. This is a housewarming gift. It's a way of saying I'm commonplace and I realize that the commonplace can't come into sacred space without offering a gift. And that gift is going to cover me that allows the common to come into the sacred. It's a housewarming gift. When you bring your offering, make it of livestock, of the herd, or of the flock. So think of this housewarming gift as a way of coming to God's tabernacle, knocking on the door and saying, Hey, God, I'd like to, I'd like to spend some time with you. I'd like to be in your, your house. I'd like to be in your presence. I'd like to let you know that I want to initiate a visit with you, is what this offering was about. And notice that when you do that, this idea of giving a piece of your herd or livestock was very, very costly. And if that gift is a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. So you would examine this animal and you'd make sure there was no cracks, no broken bones. You were giving God your very best. And it was a way of saying, I know God's presence is the best and I need to give my very best to make sure that it takes the penalty for me being common and this being sacred. It had to be male, without blemish, and you would offer it, this gift, by his own free will. Now, in an agricultural community, you didn't eat meat hardly ever. You were always eating bread. Meat was very, very costly, and the idea of eating meat uh, was this idea of, wow, we, we do that once or twice a year. It would be the idea of, maybe in today's society, you didn't just give God your crops, you gave him your tractor. Because your herd was where you got your wool, if it was a sheep, it's where you got more babies, it's where you got your livestock, it was your asset. So this was a very, very costly sacrifice for you to bring a piece of the herd. Which is a reminder that even today as we think about God's work, as we think about bringing our best to God, the same principles apply. God says, I want you to be incredibly generous and I want you to give of something that's very, very costly. Do not give to me something that costs you nothing. I want you to examine your gifts. Make sure you're being incredibly generous with those gifts. And as you do that, you don't give out of guilt. You don't give out of shame. You give out of the joy that God can make you acceptable to him. Free will. Huge cost of the herd. And without blemish, you give God your very best. And you are to do that at the door before the tabernacle of the Lord. So, the first thing we learn about holy smokes is that it was a way in which the commonplace, you and I, could come into sacred space. The second thing we identify is that holy smokes was a reminder of the danger of the common coming into the sacred. He continues in verse 4. And when you have your, your meat, when you've brought your, your animal there, you were to place your hand on the head of it before it was sacrificed. And by doing so... You put your hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will, look at it, will be accepted on his behalf. Not maybe, not hopefully, hope, wish. God said, this is a way you could for sure as common come into the sacred. You identified saying, this is my covering. The word atonement, this is not a guilt atonement, this is a commonplace atonement, was a covering. You're putting on a covering that would allow you to come into these sacred spaces. And this animal, this costly uh, sacrifice, covered you or gave you a way in. Now, again, the challenge today for us is that we feel like, well, God accepts everybody. It's not a big deal. And so we've lost the idea of how costly it was at the time or for Jesus later to die for us. Because it's like, well, God lets anything go. I recently was talking at a country club. I did a December devotional for them. 
and I spoke on the golden rule. It's amazing, when you first mention the golden rule, most people feel like, oh yeah, the golden rule, I love the golden rule. If you ask them, do you keep the golden rule? Oh, I, I, I work really hard to keep the golden rule. Most people feel like, here's God's standard, the golden rule, and I keep it most of the time. So I asked a series of questions. I said, do you really keep the golden rule? Because I've never kept the golden rule for even five minutes of my life. Do you really give to other people the way you give to yourself? Uh, Are you really as merciful toward others as you are to yourself? Well, you need to understand what happened there was. Do you give other people the benefit of the doubt the same way you give it to yourself? Are you as patient with your kids as you are with yourself? Are you as gracious to your spouse as you are to yourself? Oh, that's what the golden rule means? You see, the law was designed to show us that we don't keep God's standards. We don't keep his law. And the law, the cost of the sacrifice was to remind you the distance between God's holiness and where you are. And the commonplace, it's dangerous for the commonplace to come into sacred space. I'll give an example. We have a few examples today that don't seem quite as archaic as killing off animal meat. So if you go to a baseball game or you go to a sporting event, you go to a special event and they have a VIP room, right? Can everyone get in the VIP room? Not if you're common. You have to have a VIP pass, which shows that either you paid or someone paid on your behalf to get into that sacred space. Another example, you go to a restaurant, you're with your spouse, you show up and you realize, oh, it's a sports jacket kind of place. And they say, well, you... I'm sorry, you can't come into this sacred space without a covering. But we do have some jackets to provide for you. And they give you a jacket sort of kind of fits. And that is your covering that allows the commonplace to come into the sacred space. Well, my dad was a school teacher, but uh, during the uh, summers, he often did a lot of welding out in, uh, he had a welder in our garage. And I remember he'd be out there welding, you know, and he's got the, the face mask on, <laughs> sparks flying, the energy and the power, the, the 220 line going there. And I remember as a kid, I was watching him and from just outside the garage. He's like, stop, come here, Chad. Are you watching me weld? Yeah, Dad. You cannot look at that light. Why? It's cool. It sparks. It's beautiful. It's powerful. Because if you stare at the sparking weld, your eyes will actually go blind. <gasps> Why? Because your common eyes can't handle the power and the beauty of this spark without a covering. And so he put his welding mask on me. And through the covering, my common eyes could now be in the presence of this, this arc, this beauty, this power. And that's this idea here. That something had to be our covering. And this offering that you bring before God was your covering. And allowed you to come into sacred space. Or if you had surgery or you're a doctor or a nurse, you know the idea of creating a sterile environment, right? Instruments got to be sterile, hands got to be sterile, environment's got to be sterile. And maybe one of, you, one of your nurses or, or, the, or the surgeon is late, and so he, he runs in late, like, hey, sorry, I'm late, didn't have time to wash my hands, let's get going. You're like, whoa, 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 you can't bring commonplace hands into a sterile environment. There's no, you can't bring unsterile things into a sterile environment. That's this idea. It's dangerous for you. Your eyes will melt looking at the light if you think the commonplace can come into the sacred place. So that's the idea here. And so the next step is once you brought your herd and placed your hand upon it, it would be cut up and sacrificed. 
That's what happens here in the next portion. You shall kill the bull before the Lord and the priests, Aaron's sons, will bring the blood and sprinkle the blood all around the altar that is by the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So here's what would happen. You would come in the front door here of the tabernacle. There's only one way in. That's why Jesus said, I am the door, referencing this idea. You would bring your bull. You would slaughter it on one of these slaughtering tables. Be cut up in a very specific way. And then it would be brought to the altar where it would be burned up completely. And that's what a, an offering was something that was burned completely before God versus a sacrifice. You burned a portion of it and then you ate a portion of it in God's presence. And that was called the communal meal or communing with God when you ate in God's presence. The idea we get communion. So you're, you're going to sacrifice this at the altar right there by the door of the tabernacle of meeting. All right? Which gets us to this third aspect of holy smokes is that when you came into the uh, tabernacle, there was always holy smokes. There was literally smoke going up before God. There was this smell. As you came in today, you noticed it smelled like beef in here. We, we cooked crockpots here all night long because we wanted you to smell the beef. Because if you come to Tabernacle, and if you ask any Jewish person, Hebrew person, Hebrew child, what does the worship of God smell like? Smell like? They would know instantly. Worship of God smells like a barbecue. Because every time you came to Tabernacle, gigantic barbecue going on. There was smoke coming up, holy smoke, and that holy smoke represented somebody's knocking on God's door. Somebody's wanting to spend some time with God. Somebody wants to be in God's presence. And this holy smokes was a reminder that God was making a way that common people could come into his presence. As we'll talk about in a moment, if you came into the center portion called the holy place, there were several things set up to represent God as well. And you would also see holy smokes was always ascending from the incense altar. Another reminder of holy smokes that we could be in God's presence. We'll talk about that in a moment. The third aspect of Holy Smokes that we get to is this idea that it transformed us. So when you take your beef and when you begin to burn it, first thing you do is you skin the burnt offering, cut it into pieces. So this is a lot of hard work to get into God's presence. Aaron, the priest, would come out. They'd lay fire on the altar. They'd lay wood in order. The priest, Aaron's sons, lay the parts, the head and the fat in a certain order on the wood that's on the fire upon the altar. You had to sit there and wash the entrails and legs with water. I mean, this is a mess. It smells. And the priest would burn all of it. That's why it's an offering. All of it gets burned before God as a burnt sacrifice. An offering made by fire. And here's the key. God says, and this will be a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord. So if you're using our Bible study principle of using the Bible to interpret the Bible, you might type in the BibleGateway.com, sweet-smelling aroma. And see if somewhere in the New Testament it references that. We'll talk about that later. And here's this idea. If you've ever been a hunter, if you've hunted deer, or if you've ever just had meat go bad, you know the, just sort of the rank smell of that. That was this idea. When you took the insides out of the animal, it smelled terrible. A reminder that you smelled badly before God, that you were unholy or un, um, ex- you weren't in an acceptable place because you smelled of the, your moral decay. And yet when you took that animal and burnt it, it went from the smell of sin and the smell of being unacceptable to becoming a sweet-smelling aroma before the God, before God. So that smoke was a reminder that you now smelled clean. You now smell, smelled acceptable 
You now smelled of the smell that God said, come into my house and let's enjoy some time together. And this idea of the sweet-smelling aroma shows up several times here. But notice the transformation. You've gone from smelling unacceptable to smelling sweet before God. Next verse. So you're going to kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord and the priests. And the Aaron's son sprinkle the blood all around the altar. We'll talk about that in future weeks. Bring it all. Burn it all on the altar. It's a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire. And he mentions again two more times, it's a sweet-smelling aroma of the Lord. And when you do this, it will be a sweet-smelling aroma before the Lord. But he also says, now some of you can't afford to bring a herd or a lamb. That's giving up your tractor. That's, you just can't afford it. And I want everyone at any income range to be able to come into my presence. Still at a cost, though. So he makes a way that if you don't have a lot of money and you don't have meat, you can offer turtle doves or young pigeons as your housewarming gift. Now, does the word turtle doves mean anything to you when you think of Christmas? You're thinking, and a partridge and a pear tree. No, not that one. Mary and Jesus, after Jesus is born and she goes through the time of purification, they come to Simeon and they offer a sacrifice of what? Turtle doves. Because they were poor and they were saying, God, we, we want to knock on the door. We want to spend some time with you. So Mary and Joseph offer a Levitical sacrifice of turtle doves so that they could know that they could be the common in the sacred. And they could then be a sweet smelling aroma before God. Now, here's why this is so key. As we get into the inner sanctuary, God made this to be a, a visual aid of his presence. When you came into the holy place, there was shorebread, 12 pieces, a reminder that God's presence, he was a promise-keeping God. He chose the 12 sons of Jacob to be his holy people, living differently in the world. They were his holy people, and he would keep his promises to them. And it was, it was unleavened bread or shorebread to remind you that no sin, no leaven could come into God's presence. Secondly, you'd notice that the priests were constantly having incense, a cloud come up from the incense altar. Why? Because God wanted to remind you, when, when I took you out of bondage, you remember when I led you? What did I lead you as? A pillar of cloud. My presence is a reminder, I want to be with you when you face the unknown. If you're wondering where I am, the pillar of cloud is still here. When you face the unknown or uncertainty, I want you to remind you that I have not left you. I am the pillar of cloud. Also, the menorah doesn't have six like a religious menorah. In Exodus, it said it was supposed to have seven. It was supposed to be crafted with buds on it to look like a tree. Why? Why is fire constantly going in the holy place? But God wanted to remind us that he was the pillar of fire, that he was with us, that there are seven feasts we'll talk about in a few weeks or even months. Secondly, it was designed to look like a tree to remind us that God used to be with us in a garden. And that this was another way in which, though the garden had been removed because of our unholiness, God was recreating the garden, heaven on earth, a sacred place for us. So, God is a jealous, consuming fire. He wants to be back in the garden and will eventually restore that with us. He is the one who leads us through the pillar of cloud. He is a promise-keeping God. All of this was part of what God was describing. God was making a way for the commonplace to enter sacred space. It's like, well, that's interesting. I guess, what does that have to do with me? Everything. Because now in the New Testament, it says that 
concepts described here in chapter 1 of Leviticus are your and my purpose for life. Right. Stay with me. My goal in this series is to turn the most boring book you've ever read into your favorite book of the Bible. Not a chance. We'll see. Look what happens in the New Testament. Number one, what's different today? Where back in those days you had to fearfully enter sacred space. Oh my goodness, are we going to get in? How do we get in? Now we discover that Jesus in, in Hebrews chapter 4, 9, and 11, He is the ultimate sacrifice. He's skinned on our behalf. He's tortured on our behalf. He's bruised. He's flipped over. He's stabbed. He's crucified. And it's so brutal to remind us the gap between us and God. And unlike the goats and unlike the herds who can only temporarily cover, only temporarily get us in, Jesus comes. A male, perfect sacrifice. And fully pays for what not just we have done, but what everyone has done. So now we can come into sacred space, not with fear, not with shame, not with I hope for the best, boldly we now boldly as followers of jesus can enter sacred space hebrews 4 let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace in time of need and now god says i my house is even bigger than a tabernacle now you can at any time through prayer through the word through initiation come into my presence and find my promises find my presence Find my desire to lead you and to commune with you. And you can do that without fear or guilt. And if you don't know what it's like to know confidently and for sure that you can be acceptable for God, these sacrifices point to Jesus and you do not have to live with a big blanket of guilt over you, wondering how God feels about you because of Jesus. Secondly, we not only boldly enter sacred space, and this is so shocking to the original audience, let alone to us, is that we become sacred space. If you talk to anyone about what sacred space is, they'd say, oh, the tabernacle sacred space, the temple sacred space. Now in the New Testament, when Jesus ascends, he sends his Holy Spirit to come and dwell in us. And now we not only get to boldly enter sacred space, we become sacred space. Paul says in Corinthians, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. What? For you were bought at a price. Someone died to be your atonement. Someone died to be your covering. Jesus ultimately not only allows you to come into sacred space, He comes into you and you become sacred space. Therefore, you are God's. Which means if you're struggling with having a good self-image or being too hard on yourself, you look at the cross and say, what are you adding to Jesus' beating by beating yourself up? Did He not pay enough? And every time you go to beat yourself up, you remind yourself, he was beaten for me. Every time you try and build your, your self-image on yourself, you're like, that's the problem. I'm building it on self. I need to build it on God lives here. I am God's and I am a temple of the Holy Spirit. I am sacred space because the most important person in the universe is entered and living in me. What would it look like if you and I begin to act like sacred space? believe what the Bible says about being sacred space? What if we began to live in our families, in our communities, in our world, as if we were the sacred space God calls us to be? Then the third is even more incredible. Not only can we enter sacred space, not only do we become sacred space, but wherever we go, we, you and I can create sacred space. 
This was unheard of. And yet look at that word sweet-smelling aroma picked up in the New Testament. Paul uses it in Ephesians. He says, when you walk in love, as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us as what? An offering, Levitical language, and a sacrifice, Levitical language, to God for a what? Sweet-smelling aroma. Jesus' death on the cross, he was the sweet-smelling aroma that made us acceptable. And now, whenever you and I love, walk in love, we, the, the tabernacle, for the most part, sat in a certain location until the whole tribe moved. Now, you can walk the tabernacle around. Wherever you go as a temple of the Holy Spirit, you can now create sacred space when you walk in love. When you help comfort somebody who's mourning, it becomes sacred. When you're patient with a spouse who doesn't really deserve your patience, sacred space. When you consider to pursue a prodigal son or daughter, it becomes sacred space. When you give to somebody who can never give you anything in return, it's sacred space. When you help someone with their doubts make their way back to God, you've created sacred space. When you give of your vacation, you give of your time to go serve in the city here, near, and far, go work in city gospel, you've created sacred space with Happy Church. If you, like many a few weeks ago, took their vacation time to go down to Belize to help people who could never afford surgeries or never afford the kind of services that are offered, you're creating sacred space. Just last week, John and the team got back and sent me a picture of Gilberto. You've heard me tell the story of just over the last couple of years. Several volunteers, one of my neighbors as well, just felt compelled to help this little guy out. All kinds of medical conditions. He needed his... Uh, face reconstructed in some different ways so he could eat. He also got a whole genetic run last year. Several people in our church had him brought over here to America to get these tests done. $100,000 worth of tests in a family that makes you know $150 a year at best. And this year, another update is they're working on him and getting him the help he needs. What happens is that people who are followers of Jesus leave Cincinnati and they go to these locations and they don't just serve people. They're creating sacred space. God's kingdom is coming to bear in a situation that is broken or hurting. That's what's going on here. God wants you and I to know that our purpose in life is not to sit or one day get to heaven. That's fine. But it's not that we've become sacred space. And we're supposed to, in this broken world, create sacred space in our relationships, in our marriages, in our families. I had lunch this week with my friend Doug Isley. He and I are going to go uh, be interviewing at the 10, 11, 10 service this week. And you know, we just were sharing about you know, the challenges of special needs. And we we're sharing together about the, the funeral of his sort of adopted son, Logan, which we'll talk about in the next service. And, and that just that place at National Exemplar became sacred space as we just talked openly about, about grieving and about mourning. You know, Chad, for a lot of years I spent time creating sacred space you know, at country clubs and with business leaders and and as a leader, when we lead well, we create sacred space. Nothing wrong with business leading. Nothing wrong. In fact, as Christians, we need more sacred space in our companies, in our communities. He said, but since God got a hold of me in this idea of, of working with families with special needs, I find myself spending a lot less time at country clubs and a lot less time with business meetings. And I find myself on the weekend spending a lot more time at birthday parties for special needs kids. And I'm finding that God is doing something sacred in me through those experiences. What if each one of us didn't just come to church or come to the sanctuary? That's very Old Testament thinking. 
What if we began to be the church and be the sacred space and act like sacred space in our community? Because from the book of Leviticus to Ezekiel to Isaiah to Jesus, God is calling all of us to recognize his unbelievable sacrifice for us, to know he is holy and that we are now to live and to be holy as he is holy in the world today. Let's watch. So later in the scriptures, we find this really interesting story by a prophet named Isaiah. And he has this crazy vision where he's in the temple and he's right in God's presence. He's totally terrified. Yeah, he knows the rules. He shouldn't even be in there. And he's worried about being destroyed. And then this crazy creature called a seraphim. Yeah, that is a crazy creature. Totally. So it flies over with a hot coal. And then it sears Isaiah's lips with the coal and says something really weird. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. So this burning coal somehow makes Isaiah pure. Yeah, it's remarkable. Because normally, if you touch something impure, it transfers its impurity to you. But now here's this new idea where you have this coal, this very holy and pure object, and it touches Isaiah, and it transfers its purity to him. Isaiah is not destroyed by God's holiness. He's transformed by it. I mean, the implications of this are just huge. But there's one more development, this time from another prophet, Ezekiel. And he has this vision where he's standing at the temple, and he sees water trickling out from it. And then that water turns into a stream, and then it grows into a deep river that starts flowing through the desert, leaving this trail of green trees behind it. And then it flows into the Dead Sea, making everything fresh and alive. So instead of becoming pure first and then going into the temple, here God's holiness comes out from the temple, making things pure and bringing them to life. What does it all mean? We don't know until we meet this man, Jesus. And he claims that he's fulfilling all of these ancient visions, but in surprising new ways. So Jesus, he went around touching people who are impure, people with skin diseases, a, a woman with chronic bleeding or dead people. And when he touches them, their impurity should transfer over to Jesus. But instead, Jesus's purity transfers to them and actually heals their bodies. Jesus is like that holy coal in Isaiah's vision. Right. And Jesus claimed that he was the human embodiment of God's own holiness and that he and his followers were now God's temple so that through them, God's holy presence would go out into the world and bring life and healing and hope. And so this is why Jesus described his followers as having streams of living water flowing out of them. Father, thank you that you are holy and thank you that you have taken people who are not and you have made us holy through your work on the cross and your ultimate sacrifice that we would leave today, not leaving church, but going as the church, taking your presence into every corner, every place that we work and every area that we live, Father. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And that's just one week in the book of Leviticus. See you next week.